everyone, welcome to the Cornea Corner, a podcast where two new optometrists demystify anterior segment diseases and specialty contact lenses while exploring what's new in the corneal world. Hi everyone, my name is Priscilla Chang and this is my cornea-loving co-host, Shawan Rashid. How's it going, girl? <laughs> it is amazing. It's been it's better than ever. Uh, residency ended, so now I have a job job. <laughs> yes, get paid. A real job. <laughs> Girl, not even that. Now I have benefits. <laughs> That's right. That medical and dental and vision. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Fortunately, I don't have to pay for uh, vision, but I think I told you at the on the last episode, I was hired on as faculty at Southern College of Optometry. So I was a student there, I was a resident there, and now I'm part of faculty there. So I'm very, very excited to be a part of the team. I've been learning a lot already, and I'm excited to be in the adult primary care clinic. I'll be in contact lens a few times in the week as well. And Priscilla, <laughs> I said yes to nursing home. <laughs> Ooh, yes. <laughs> I, that one makes me a little nervous, but you know what? It's going to be okay because it's going to have a ton of disease. And you know what? That's what I'm more interested in. I told them as long as I'm not in vision therapy or peds, I'm happy. So will you be working with students at the nursing home or is that just you doing direct care? Yes. With students. I'll have with four students. students like I typically do. And we'll see. Is that like a rotation site for students? It is as a third year student. So oh. it's, it's a little rough for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> But it's very, very interesting and very rewarding. So I, I, I am excited that I pushed myself out of this comfort zone and I'll be doing that. What about you? Any new news? I am moving. So that is happening. This is probably the main reason why we're also slow in releasing episodes. <laughs> A lot of big changes happening for both of us, but I'm going to be <laughs> moving from Sacramento to Los Angeles. So if we have any listeners out there and you have a a job opening or whatnot, reach out. Let us just know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, girl, shoot your shot. You're a great clinician. <laughs> All right. So I'm so excited to kickstart this episode by sharing about a new contact lens that is going to hit the market soon in about a week. It is the total 30 lens from Alcon. Have you heard of that lens yet? No, not until you mentioned it to me for this episode, actually. Right. Well, I heard about it from my Alcon rep and it's so exciting because it is a monthly lens first water gradient one. So it's based off of the daily totals one technology. You get 55% uh, water content at the core, and then it transitions to hundred percent on the outside and it's designed to biomimic the corneal surface. So for mm -hmm. this lens, they developed this new technology called Celligent technology. So cell and intelligent, and basically they're biomimicking the natural defenses that are on the ocular surface on the surface of the contact lens. They have these polymer nanofibers that are constantly moving around kind of like the corneal epithelial cell and the glycocalyx that you have on there. But the cool part mm -hmm. is that it has a gel like layer of defense so that large molecules mm. like lipids, bacteria, they basically get resisted or repelled. And then the surface also allows for water molecules to get attracted because it's a net neutral charge. And so it's, it's pretty neat to have that available for some of our patients who think daily lenses are too expensive or <laughs> they want to, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, they care about the environment. <laughs> 
Yeah, definitely. I agree completely. There are a lot of patients that would love to be in a DT1, but with the price, it's just a little bit hard to be able to afford like an annual supply of it. So this will be a great alternative, especially with the having similar technology. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was looking into the key features of the lens, uh, so far, it looks like it's just for daily wear. It's not for extended wear. So the patients can't sleep in them. Mm-hmm. It is a silicone hydrogel material and it did have a pretty low modulus. Um, and that's great for a monthly lens because I've noticed that some patients actually complain about discomfort with the higher modulus monthly lenses when they wear them more than, you know, 12 hours a day. And that makes sense. I mean, there's just increased stiffness and, you know, they tend to sense the lens a little bit more. The DK value is incredible. It's 154 and there's class one UV protection for the lens as well. And the power range is actually very impressive. It goes from a plus eight to a minus 12. And like you mentioned, uh, there's hundred percent water content on the front surface and the back surface of the lens. And in the core, it's got 55% water content. So, and that intelligent technology <laughs> is pretty cool. Very exciting. I can't wait for us to get trials of these for SEO. Right. The number one reason for contact lens dropout in the United States is comfort and vision with 50% being comfort. So the fact that we have a lens that is a water gradient lens that mimics the surface of the eyes, that is amazing um, in terms of how far technology has gone in the last two decades, but also the consideration of repelling bacteria and deposits and whatnot. I feel like Mm -hmm. that is also very important in contact lenses that are monthlies because, you know, those protein deposits, (laughs) GPC, Mm -hmm. all of that. Um, We want to make sure that we can avoid that as much as possible. And this is a great technology to offer to patients who want to stay in the monthly lens, but as you mentioned, can't afford the daily totals one. Yeah. And hopefully this lens actually becomes so popular that they'll have a toric option soon. You know, with DT1, they don't have toric options. I'm sure price is one of the reasons. I mean, it's going to, it's going to be very, very expensive for a toric DT1. So hopefully this monthly one will become popular enough where they'll have toric options. Oh, that mm-hmm. is a great point. Yeah, for sure. My news isn't as interesting as yours in the contact lens world, but the Boshalom Ultra Torque Multifocals are expanding their cylinder ranges to minus 275. That's actually amazing. I feel like having a multifocal toric option is already key because there's so many patients with those kind of parameters. So increasing the sill definitely opens up another thing in our toolbox. I like yeah, saying toolbox definitely. on our podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> So let's get into the real reason why we have this episode. And the goal of this episode really is to review the dues to report together. Because let's be real, no one has really read the whole thing. (laughs) And if you have, it's probably my um, supervisor, Dr. Fuller. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out. (laughs) Because it's a, yeah, right. Because it's really about like 200 pages long. And it's just, it's just difficult. Uh, the reason why we really wanted to go through this is because dry eye disease is, is becoming very, very popular. And now we're seeing it more commonly in younger patients and they're becoming more symptomatic. And with the pandemic that started last year, we have a lot of, like I said, a lot of patients that are becoming more symptomatic and they're coming into the office and they're complaining of discomfort or dry eyes, or, you know, they're complaining about their eyes being red. It's important to always ask them, well, what are you doing for this. And I've had a lot of patients actually tell me this year that they're using Visine and clear eyes. Have you had this issue before? 
Oh my gosh. Yes. To all of that. <laughs> I feel like I have a lot of younger patients coming in complaining <laughs> about <laughs> eye strain, which is actually like their focus system is fine. BB's fine. You know, prescription is okay. And really it's, it's dry eyes. People aren't blinking these days. Going back to the whole visiting commentary, I did have a patient that came in last week. He was an older individual who had red eyes. And I walked into the room thinking that he had scleritis or something because his eyes were that red, like both eyes. Mm. And I asked him, I'm like, do you experience dry eyes? He's like, no, my eyes don't get dry. They just get really, really red and water a lot. And I'm like, oh, you know, this is one of those things where you have to kind of really go in there and educate because treating dry eyes and the etiology of it is more important than just coating over the symptoms with visine, which can cause rebound redness. So I feel like visine is one of those, it's like the optometrist's least favorite drop, but that patient, his eyes just, he had a chalazion that he didn't know about. He had a ton of MGD. There was just a lot of ocular surface disease. There was staining. And he was just like, I don't understand. Like my eyes are just red. Like, why are you telling me it's dry? And so this kind of just contributes to this conversation about how we really should delve into dry eyes because it's more complex than red eyes or watery eyes. So this is, mm -hmm. this is a great series that we're starting off on. Yeah, I agree. Falling into the introduction of dry eyes, it actually wasn't recognized until only about a little over 30 years ago. And in the past three decades, we've seen an increased awareness for dry eye disease and not just rising in the United States, but all over the world. And I mentioned the DUES 2 report. So let me backtrack a little bit. The DUES 2 report was published by a nonprofit organization called TFOS. So TFOS or T-F-O-S is the Tear Film and Ocular Surface Society. And they published the DUES 1 report in 2007 and the DUES 2 report in 2017. So the DUES 2 report was an extensive evidence-based approach to studying and, and presenting dry eye disease. We're basically going to fluidly go through the findings that those 12 subcommittees had. And just to kind of break down the DUES 2 report for everyone. With dry eye disease being such an issue globally, it was really a, a global effort. Just the definition and classification committee by itself actually had contributions from representatives from 23 different countries. And now thanks to TFOS, we have an updated global definition of dry eye and actually a classification scheme that helps guide clinicians with clinical management, primarily based off presenting features now. And it still recognizes the main subtypes of dry eyes as aqueous deficient and evaporative, but it acknowledges the frequent coexistence and overlap of the subtypes now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what an effort. <laughs> so many people came together right. to put together this report. So it makes sense that it's very long because dry eyes is something that is complicated in a sense, but hopefully we can demystify that for everybody. The goal of this you know, episode for us is to really kind of break down the definition and the classification. So what that specific subcommittee broke down and created for us, which is, you know, a true definition for dry eyes. But, you know, I think it's really interesting if we go back and look at the history of how we define dry eyes, the first definition of dry eyes wasn't published that long ago. It was actually published in 1995. And it was based on a consensus from the NEI, the National Eye Institute and the Industry Working Group that was on the clinical trials in dry eyes. And at that time, they had defined dry eyes as a disorder of the tear film due to tear deficiency and or excessive tear evaporation, which causes damage to the interpalpebral ocular surface and is associated with symptoms of ocular discomfort. 
So letting that sink in, we didn't call it a disease at that point. We really just called it a disorder because we didn't know enough about how to measure it, what really was causing it, what the mechanism was. So really it was very vague. We just knew that dry was a thing at that time. And definitely it was affecting the quality, the quantity mattered. Um, and then if we fast forward to 2006, that was when dry eyes was called dysfunctional tear syndrome. So at that point, the classification system was created to try to guide treatment based on whether or not there was inflammation involved. And just a year later, that's when the first TFOS came out, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. It was in 2007 when Dues One was published. In this report, it was the first time that dry eyes was defined as a disease with a multifactorial etiology. In order for us to call it a disease, we have to have a known etiology, and it's not as vague anymore. We know there's something causing it. So in 2007, with the Dues One report, they defined dry eyes as a multifactorial disease of tears and ocular surface that results in symptoms of discomfort, visual disturbance, and tear film instability with potential damage to the ocular surface. It is accompanied by increased osmolarity of the tear film and inflammation of the ocular surface. So definitely a little bit more extensive (laughs) than Mm -hmm. the 1995 definition. So it's, and even in 2007, it was pretty good. It's, It's a decent definition and it goes into a little bit more detail of the disease. I feel like at that point, the optometrists were like, you know, we have too many fluctuations in the vision behind the forefather. It's dry eyes. <laughs> so including <laughs> visual disturbance into that definition, because both of us knows how, how common that is. That's like, I feel like that's how, you know, people have dry eyes behind the forefather, but it is mm-hmm. great that they finally recognize it as a disease because now we're saying dry eyes is actually pathologic and there's implications on the quality of life that our patients will experience. And it's associated with very specific signs or symptoms. And I remember being at an academy meeting where there was members from the TFOS like subcommittee on definition. And they're talking about how it was two hours long and it's talking, just talking about this definition and how important it is, because this is really what guides our treatment and management. So this point in time, after 2007, what changed about the dry eye field? So after 2007, that definition included hyperosmolarity and included ocular surface inflammation. So with them mentioning that, obviously there has to be a way to measure that because we're calling it a disease now. There were advances technologically to treat it. And so we throw around the word hyperosmolarity quite a bit. So I wanted to, I'm really big on like technical terms and definitions. It just means there's an increased concentration of solutes in the tear film. And this is due to evaporation of the aqueous portion of our tears. And it's important because tear hyperosmolarity causes morphological changes on the ocular surface cells, which includes the cornea and conjunctiva. And these changes can cause apoptosis of cells. And it also triggers the inflammatory cascade which we all know causes more cell death. And so now we need to be able to measure that. And, you know, we're relating inflammation to dry eyes at this point. That makes sense. The the cycle of dry eyes, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but the concept of a disrupted tear film homeostasis really does acknowledge the possibility that there's a ton of different things that can occur in dry eyes and disrupt the tear film and ocular surface, which ultimately Mm -hmm. causes the dry eyes. So when you mention osmolarity, what are the normative values for osmolarity? So the normal osmolarity of our tears would be about 300, technically 308 based off of most literature. And so if we're talking about hyperosmolarity, that would be higher than 308. And so patients who have like if you measure their osmolarity and if it's 340 or 330 or 
anything like that or higher, they are a patient that you would consider to have dry eyes and you would ask about their symptoms and, and check for other signs of it. You know, in optometry school, when they measured the osmolarity of my tears, I was literally 309. <laughs> and then they're Ooh. like, hmm, this is, this is confounding. <laughs> <laughs> you like to live on edge, I see. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so the dues one report gave us new considerations, but there are some other ones, of course, with time. I mean, 2007 is 2017. That's a decade. So a lot of new things were discovered. And we learned more about different conditions. And since the dues one report, the new considerations that were made for the dues two report, one of them was loss of homeostasis. And this occurs from a variety of factors, as we know, um, that not only include the ocular surface or tear film abnormalities, tear film homeostasis can also occur from eyelid conditions like eyelid mm-hmm. disease and blink abnormalities. Right, right. I think at this point, there was also growing evidence for neurosensory abnormalities that can contribute to dry eyes. So we're talking neuropathic pain that happens from damage to the somatosensory nervous system. There's also nociceptive pain where there's local tissue damage that can cause some issues. So on the cornea, when you have the nociceptors that will transmit the pain information to the central nervous system, there is a potential at in the pathway to have it become desensitized, either from the hypoosmolarity you were talking about or inflammation or just repeated physiological stimulation. So like poorly fitting contact lenses, for example. So as we're learning more and more that that is contributing to dry eyes, it was a no brainer that that needs to be included in the next definition. The other thing that was interesting is that we always talk about dry eyes clinically as like chronic progressive, but turns out there wasn't really actually enough evidence for them to include that in the definition. So maybe we'll see that in the future. So what was the new 2017 TFOS DUCE 2 definition? So the new definition is dry eyes is a multifactorial disease of the ocular surface that's characterized by a loss of homeostasis of the tear film and accompanied by ocular symptoms in which tear film instability and hyperosmolarity, ocular surface inflammation and damage and neurosensory abnormalities play etiological roles. So it did keep a few key characteristics of the dues one report definition, but it did include new ones, like we mentioned. So it talked about homeostasis. It talked about neurosensory abnormalities, and it actually, it included ocular symptoms this time too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so interesting because ocular symptoms is such a broad phrase, but turns out they're like, you know, we want something that encompasses a broader range of potential symptoms that are associated with dry eyes. Cause we know that there's visual disturbances or discomfort. But one of the other things that was mentioned was, you know, sometimes if we're describing a symptom, it may not translate well to other languages. And since it's a, a global group of people coming together to formulate this definition, it just made sense to keep it super broad. That was so considerate. I know <laughs> they did a good job. <laughs> the person in the back is like, how about me? <laughs> There's no word for that in my, in my language. <laughs> when I think about the dues to report, you know, I think about the classification schemes, like the schematic with all the charts and everything. The dues to report, do you go into the historical background and how they classified and before in 1995 they classified it really as tear deficient versus evaporative and then in 2007 they kind of broke it down into more aqueous versus evaporative and then they had subclassification so i would say we're not going to spend too much time talking about that because those previous schematics really made it so it seemed like you either had one or the other it was mutually exclusive there was no continuum of those two or mixed etiologies for dry eyes 
during this time, the late nineties and the early two thousands, that's when they learned more about Sjogren's for example. And in those two classifications, Sjogren's was previously thought to contribute only to aqueous deficient dry eyes, but then they start finding out more and more. And we're like, actually it's associated with MGD two. So now what mm -hmm. do we do? Like Sjogren's doesn't fit into this perfect binary classification. And so what we do know is that evaporative dry eyes, aqueous dry eye, there is a continuum. So the new classification basically includes triaging elements. It also includes cases where there's symptoms, no signs or signs and no symptoms. So we tend to think about those with neuropathic pain or preclinical dry eyes, as well as dysfunction, reduced corneal sensitivity. So there's a ton of different comorbidities that are also kind of included in their classification because ocular surface disease is not as simple <laughs> as we previously thought it was. So mm -mm. that's kind of been the natural course of everything. And we are going to include the classification systems on our podcast page for this episode. So if you want to go back and look at it, you can, or you can simply Google it. <laughs> yeah. You can easily find these classification maps. I remember when I was in school, probably, I don't know if I was a first year or second year student, but it was before the dues to report, like right before it was released. And I saw the classification map from the 2007 one, the dues one. And I was like, wow, I'm so impressed by this. It lays it out so well. And then now I'm looking at the dues too. And I was like, okay, this is so much more impressive. And now that I've been out in practice at least a year, I do see why they made the changes mm -hmm. that they made. So basically the new classification allows dry eye disease to be classified based on the predominant etiology. Aqueous deficiency we know describes a condition affecting the lacrimal gland and evaporative dry eye was understood to occur with conditions affecting the eyelid. And so, you know, myobomian gland dysfunction and even blink abnormalities or evaporative dry eye also can occur with ocular surface conditions related to like mucin deficiency or if you have like goblet cell death that can reduce the mucin being produced or even contact lens wear that would fall under the umbrella of evaporative dry eye. So there still are a couple distinct umbrellas of dry eye, but now with DUCE 2, it kind of follows more of a, is this patient symptomatic or are they asymptomatic? Okay. Well, if they're, you know, symptomatic, you know, what category do they have signs or do they not have signs? It breaks it down a little bit more based off signs and symptoms. And then it, goes back into, okay, this is leaning more towards aqueous deficient versus evaporative. Like you said, there is a continuum. I hear that all the time at conferences. There's a mixed mechanism going on. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things about the colored classification algorithm or whatnot is that there's a density in the color. Like you have the extremes, like you were saying, like you have the super evaporative, you have the super aqueous deficient, and then the mixes in the middle. But ultimately the goal is to figure out how do we restore homeostasis? So it really does make sense that you have to figure out the bigger picture. Okay. They're symptomatic. What kind of disease do they have? What's going on? And then you choose the one that you think is contributing the most to the dry eye. So pick one, <laughs> treat that one first, right. And let that guide how you're thinking about management without completely ignoring the other one. You know, that's kind of how we should be approaching these cases. So don't just sit there and be like, Oh, I see, I see MDD. I see, you know, just like listing it out, but really just in your mind, 
mentally categorize, oh yeah, this is more of an evaporative dryer. This is more aqueous. What can we do to treat it? So the interesting thing is we're going to be talking about the different types of treatment and the DUCE 2 report really does a really great job in trying to address all the different potential treatments for that specific type of dry eye. So I think it gets really exciting when we get to go into the next section where we get to move beyond defining it. And then how do we apply this definition and treat it? Mm -hmm. I agree. And I don't know if you've noticed this Priscilla, but a lot of the brands out there actually recognize this mixed mechanism and they have multiple different products for uh, dry eyes. So if you'll look at, let's say OcuSoft, like they have lid wipes, they have drops, they have like, you know, um, they have multiple different types of product. I actually was talking to an Optase rep. He had a presentation at SEO recently and he has a kit and he said, I really recommend patients leave with a kit or have a kit. And it includes, um, I think it was like cleanse, hydrate, something else. Heat. Anyway, you start off heat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Heat, cleanse, hydrate. So they have something similar to like a brooder mask where, you know, you, that focuses more on your meibomian glands and your lids and keeping them healthy and then cleansing your eyelids and then uh, restoring the tears and by using their preservative-free dry eye drop or artificial tear. Mm -hmm. So a, and you, a lot of brands now have multiple products, like I mentioned. So uh, that's, that's very interesting that we're kind of gearing more toward that. And like you mentioned, now that we've gone through the evolution of the definition of dry eyes, we can dive deeper into the risk factors for it. So that's going to be very exciting. So if you've been listening to this episode, I hope you continue to listen to this series where we get to break down the dues to report even further. But until then, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Cornea Corner podcast. Visit our website, thecorneacorner.com and our Instagram page at thecorneacorner for additional resources, including photos of any of the cases that were discussed.